And now a word from our sponsor. Attention UX and front-end experts. For years, an event apart conferences have been the best way to level up your skills. Get inspiration from world-class experts and learn what's next in web design. Now, an event apart is proud to introduce Online Together, a single-day online conference focused on human-centered design. And it's all coming to a device near you Monday, July 20th. Featuring insights from Margot Bloomstein, Ron Bronson, Scott Giel, Farai Madzima, Morton Rand Hendrickson, and Aaron Walter, you'll learn how to handle unexpected design scenarios and unusual situations as our users face unprecedented challenges and stress. You'll come away not only inspired, but ready to put new techniques and ideas immediately into practice. Greater Than Code listeners can save $50 off registration with promo code AEAGTC. So grab your spot and join us online this coming Monday, July 20th. Visit aneventapart.com to see the full agenda and register now. That registration code is AEAGTC. Welcome to Greater Than Code number 191. I'm Jessica Kerr, and I'm happy to be here today with my friend Jamie Hampton. Thanks, Jess. That's a lot of episodes that we've done. I'm really excited to be here also, and I'm introducing my friend Rain Henricks. I am not going to be able to keep up this level of excitement uh, this morning, <laughs> but I will try. I am here with my good friend, Amy Toby. Hi, Amy. Hi, everyone. Amy has worked in web operations for more than 20 years at companies of every size, touching everything from kernel code to user interfaces. When she's not working, she can usually be found around her home in San Jose, caring for her family, practicing piano, or running slowly in the sun. Those all sound like nice things to do. They are. Keep me on an even keel. Well, uh, less uneven. Even-ish. <laughs> sure you know what's coming. Uh, what is your superpower, and how did you acquire it? This thing I do when I walk into big messes or jumbles, you know, a lot of us walk into tech companies and see, you know, code bases that are sprawling and stuff. But being able to, like, look at the the, the mess and see the potential for what it could be. And it's something that I, I developed really starting as a kid. My family was largely manual workers, and my dad worked in scrapyards for most of my childhood. And so I spent a lot of time in scrapyards looking for possibility, looking at piles of junk and seeing, oh, I could build a go-kart out of that, or I could build a bike thing that looks like, you know, this antlers and stuff. This was like when I was under 10. And so, you know, that grew up into, as I got older, you know, playing with bigger things like cars and stuff and doing the same thing, though, is look, walking through piles of scrap looking for potential. Seeing potential in a big mess—that's a great superpower. It, it, it's a little bit a uh, a little bit much in this modern time, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but there's got to be potential that just absolutely couldn't have happened if we didn't go backwards this far first. I, I agree, right? Like that's that's the whole junk analogy, right? Like to, the stuff that I used to build things out of when I was young and didn't have cool toys like computers was. Uh, stuff that people had discarded, or used up and broken and throw, threw away. And from that could be built new stuff that was really cool. Amy, I'm, I'm curious, like you mentioned coming into a new company. How many different companies have you worked at? Oh, gosh, way too many. Um, <laughs> the, last, the last few years have been a, a, a journey, <laughs> to put it in uh, my therapist's terms. I, I usually use words like a mess or, you know, a disaster. So I've probably worked at... 15 different companies in my career, 12, 15, something like that. I haven't counted because it's depressing. It's cool in that um, the perspective I've gotten from that has come in really handy over the years. Being able to, you know, go out on Twitter and say broad sweeping things about operations and SRE <laughs> and stuff and, uh, and, you know, draw from that experience and, and the not just the experience, but the pain and the, and the, and the good parts, too. Right. I kind of feel like there's there's a couple prototypes that you need in people at a company. You need people who have that kind of breadth of experience to come in and, and then they don't stay forever. And you also need people who have depth in the existing system Absolutely. Um, and do stay forever. Yeah. And it, it's it's a shame that uh, so much of especially Silicon Valley, because I live here in San Jose, is is so even today still very focused on the, the rock star. Right. The, mm -hmm. And it's not even like on a generalist or, or specialist kind of spectrum. It's just, you know, this 
looking for this alignment with whatever they're trying to build so that they can exploit and get the code out as quickly as possible. It seems to be what the pattern is. But, um, you know, I, I wish there was more focus on both what I do, which is the generalist, you know, be able to look sideways across the system and, and the specialist who looks, you know, down deep into the code and, and into the systems and makes makes them better. Which are you? Are you all? Are you spe- are you T-shaped people or, you know, do you go? Do you prefer to look broadly or do you prefer to look deep into one one area? I'm actually kind of in the middle of a transition from one to the other. I've been a generalist for my career so far. I started like in consulting. And so I was doing even a lot of different like frameworks and stuff at the same time when I was like very junior. And now the past um, maybe year or so, I've kind of tried to make a decision about like, like honing in and specializing on something. And it's been like really gratifying to like almost take a step back and like really spend the time to like get to know something really holistically and I've been really enjoying like the learning aspect of that although it was like kind of nerve-wracking because I stepped into a job where I was like suddenly the API specialist at my old company (laughs) and like I was interested in that and I was learning about it I was excited about learning about it but I was kind of like I mean I'm not an expert yet I'm learning. I'm going to be an expert. And so that was kind of like a fun transition. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, that is the thing. When you pick something, you're not the expert yet. But as soon as you declare, I am learning about this and invite people to ask you about it, you yeah, you'll become the expert just from them bringing you their questions and then you going and doing the research to answer the questions. You'll you'll get that expertise. Yeah, that's why I like teaching so much is because mm. there, there's no faster way to learn than when somebody says, hey, can you teach me that? And you, go, oh, no, no, I actually have to learn this. <laughs> <laughs> but you learn it in a way that, that you don't learn if you're just trying to apply it to some problem out in the world. Right, because you have to be able to explain it. So you have to go deeper and get like a stronger mental model that goes beyond making it work this once. And, and tie it to your own experiences and knowledge. So that, so that you can draw from other parts of your expertise, especially in the early stages mm. of learning something and teaching something new. Yeah. Yeah. So you can craft a story around it, both for yourself and then others. Hmm. I was thinking about whether I'm a generalist or a specialist. And I think that probably largely because of ADHD, I've tried to be both. Hmm. So... I've become something of a specialist in various things that have managed to hold my attention for more than one month. And that's sort of an eclectic group of things that seems to have like an only a tenuous connection. (laughs) So like programming language theory and distributed systems and resilience engineering. Now those are all abstract things. Yeah. Hmm. You can like learn a lot about those things and also be pretty broad technologically. Yeah, I, I think the connection, and I, I think I mentioned this when, when I did my episode, is I think the connection is that they help me to see the connections between things. That's also why I like uh, category theory, for example, because it gives me a vocabulary for talking about how things are related that I, I think is really powerful. So I heard two things that it made me think of, which was you made me think of the T-shaped person analogy again, which I I guess Valve popularized it. It might have been around before. But the idea that, you know, you're broad in some areas, but deep in a couple. I don't know how 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 common that terminology is, but I really like that concept, especially for ADHD or neurodivergent folks like ourselves who tend not to stick to one topic and want to move around a lot. It's important to have one thing that you're deep on so that you can draw analogies to everything else that you learn. That one thing becomes kind of a, a structure. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Like for me, everything that I learn about becomes a software analogy. Uh, but that's because software is a complex system mm-hmm. and it's it's my favorite complex system. Uh, so I can I can draw analogies to any other complex systems like relationships and social structures and biology and and. Now that you do that, and I've been fascinated by this for a while, is that is that is this there like a, a type of mind that's more holistically oriented? I've noticed this in people, right? There's some folks that are that seem to be holistically oriented, right? Tend to see all the connections among the things more than the actual nodes. Mm. And then and then there are people who are very focused on the the, the nodes, right? Or even particular subgraphs of, of knowledge or whatever, right? But but not kind of trying to see the big picture. And I wonder if that's more of like a, a diversity of human experience thing or or 
mm-hmm. our career paths. Do you do you have a feeling about that? Is there a difference? I mean, between ourselves and our circumstances. But I, yeah, you're right. I, different people get satisfaction from knowing Webpacker inside and out and writing books about it versus, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by dependency management in general. Right. Yeah. There's a lot oh. to dig into there. And we, and we really need both of those people. Mm-hmm. We do. But one, one seems to, to thrive a little bit more in industry, I think. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> well, wh- what, one of these people tends to be on Twitter more and on generalist podcasts. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about those people, really. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, because I think a lot of the people who do work at one company for 10 years and really get to know that system, hmm. other people don't get to know about them. And I think there's a lot of people probably in our audience who are that person who's kind of a linchpin or at least a very important productive part of a team that they've been on for a long time and they really understand this one thing and they're always feeling bad about not being in on the latest trends. But no, people, you're the ones getting the work done. Getting it done, yeah. (laughs) One thing that I've said before is like whenever I bring up something that I don't like doing, and then someone else is like, oh, really? I love doing that. It's like my favorite thing ever because I'm like, great. <laughs> <laughs> we have someone on our team who likes to do this. And then I like to do these other things that other people might not like to do. And so that's what I was thinking about when you were saying, talking about like having different kinds of people on the team. For sure. That's that's the whole idea behind a team, right? Like if you're going to hire the same five people, then uh, I, I don't really get the point of that, actually. <laughs> I've never really understood it. Haven't they played um, D&D before? Yeah. (laughs) You have to have party coverage. It's, like, important. Right. Yeah, like, nobody wants to play the healer, right? Yeah. Yeah. Then you wind up with a trickster cleric. Yeah, and we create job descriptions often by saying, who are the people successful on the team? We want more people like them. No, you don't. You already have them. The best quote I ever heard and I've stuck with since is that the job description should describe the capabilities that the team needs, not that yeah. the individual needs. Mm, right. right? It, there's nuance to that, right? Because there, there's the whole problem with, you know, you put uh, all the things that, uh, say, an SRE needs for, for, for my team on a job description. And most men will look at it and go, ah, that's all me. And uh, <laughs> like this is there's numbers out on this. Right. And then. Most yeah. Women yeah. They're like, I, I go, have 10 percent of that. Good enough. <laughs> Right. And most women will look at it and go like, well, I only have about two thirds of these and then not apply. Yeah. And there can be a huge discrepancy in skill there. But the the bias comes through first. Yeah. I almost want to ask the existing people on the team, what do you not like to do? <laughs> that would <laughs> be a really people. good one on one question. Yeah. Yeah. How can how can I get someone else to do what you don't want to do it and just generally make the team better? And you can't answer Jira. <laughs> Oh, um, I'm tired of that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what that's what that's what I want. Like the the project lead slash manager to be just uh, you take care of the API to the rest of the organization, <laughs> which is usually Jira. I was in an interview recently, and I casually mentioned that I like did and liked doing hiring at my old company. And the person who was interviewing me was like, "Oh, I can't wait to tell everyone." <laughs> I was like, that's a good sign. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I actually like interview. I hated it earlier in my career, but as, I, as I've gained experience, I, I've grown to love it more and, and get into it. Mostly because, you know, there, there, there are the times when there were the bad interviews early, you know, where just, why am I here? And I felt my time was so important to be elsewhere. And so I was frustrated, you know, being in these interviews that were not exciting or, or anything. And so um, I would complain about it. But then... And then I had a really good manager who tried to patiently explain it to me, but it still took a couple more years for it to sink in, like really what it was that I was trying to do there, which is to bring in peers that I'm excited to work with. And so once I finally made that mind shift, it made a big difference in how I approach interviews and how much I enjoy them. And it, it drives other behavior too. you know, things like when I complained about all the bad interviews, they said, well, great, here's your HR business partner who's going through the resumes. You can sit with her. And help her sort these out a little bit more. And I was like, you got me. And okay. <laughs> and it turned out to be a great exercise, right? Because I looked through hundreds of resumes, with, with sat down with them, and we went through hundreds of resumes and, and thinned the herd and talked about it as we were going through while I was making a pile for myself 
for the candidates I was looking for. I was also talking the my HR partner through what I was looking at and what I was seeing. And so we got to go back and forth and, and discuss like what we were each looking for and get close to alignment, which helped downstream everybody else in the department too. It was really cool. Yeah. To transfer know-how, sit down and do it together. Mm. I, I often tell people that, you know, when they say like, oh, I have all these bad interviews. Like when's the last time you sat down with your recruiter and went through mm-hmm. resumes with them? And if you haven't, then, well, that's probably the next thing you need to do. So Amy, when you say you walk in and you, you find a beautiful mess, is that in the technical side of the system or does it include the social part? I have to say I'm, I'm probably more gentle on the technical system, which has none of its own autonomy. And when I walk into a mess and I see a mess in the people systems, I'm a little less into seeing the, the hidden beauty. <laughs> it's a little harder to find sometimes. But, you know, like I, see, I walk in and see, you know, a technical system, I've started to look at it in, in, uh, in more in terms of why trying to, to get myself into the, the shoes of the person who built it to understand why they made the decisions they did, which is why I usually am screaming at the walls. You know, I sit in this room with the door closed and, and complain about well, why are there no comments in the script? I have no idea what they were trying to do here. Because that's what I'm really what I'm after. What what I don't even care if the code sucks, right? I, I just need to know what what it's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. That's usually what I'm looking for in systems now, and it makes it a little easier when you find a directory full of shell scripts that have terrible names and almost no comments, and you got to figure out what they're doing because they're load bearing. And they're all in one big commit that says stuff. Yeah, usually, yeah. <laughs> load think- bearing shell scripts. Oh, right. Because this, that they're part of the structure that's holding the system together. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at most of the deploy systems out there. I, I bet it's in the, the high 90s of percent or high, you know, up in the, the point nines deploy systems that would not exist without shell, right? Like they, they have oh, yeah. their fancy, they're all written in mm-hmm. higher level languages. They do all kinds of stuff up in Go and Python and stuff. But when it gets down to the pointy end, down to where the actual real stuff happens, it's usually a shell script. Yeah. My favorite are the load-bearing bugs. Yes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That was a really interesting use of the word favorite, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're they're fascinating. Yeah, yeah, they're always so fascinating. And you, you learn a lot both about the system and about the people that built the system. Yeah, I started learning about that in the aughts when I was still had enough surplus energy to run Linux on the, the, the desktop full time mm-hmm. and would want to run games and wine. And so I was, like, ooh, you know, I know how to code. I'll get involved and figure out how to implement these APIs, not really understanding the complexity of the problem I was launching, trying to launch myself into. And that a lot of what the wine folks do in their Windows layer for Linux is finding the bugs in the in the Windows APIs and implementing them mm. exactly the same because they, they end up being lynched in the entire architecture of some of these games and things. Oh, wow. Because our, our systems, like, they grow around each other. Mm-mm. And everything new is broken because the rest of the system hasn't grown around it yet. Mm-hmm. But then... Yeah, they they be, they lean on each other, right? And yeah, hold each other still. Yeah, the yeah. biggest impediment to change is your users. <laughs> well, you know, if you've ever seen those those trees that grow up through a crack in in the rock, or that like yeah. they got split by lightning, and now they're like intertwined, like it's the trees intertwined around itself. Like that's how our systems are built. Yeah, Pro- it's a lot of local growth with a local perspective on the system that leads to these really fascinatingly messy systems. Well, and it's how we are built. Why are you so good at that? Well, cause we had a lot of problems with it. Yeah. My, my favorite is the, uh, in biology is the, the vagus nerve. Is that the one that makes hiccups? It is, I think related cause it's part of your regulation of your parasympathetic or your sympathetic nervous system. But the, what's cool about it in terms of like legacy wrapping around stuff is that I, I might have the wrong nerve, but there's one that runs from your brain down into your chest cavity and then back up for some reason. And so like, and in, in, in it's common across mammals. We should probably look this up because I'm going to get some the terminology wrong. But it's uh, it's really interesting because like even in the giraffe, right, like this nerve runs all the way down the giraffe's neck and then back up. And it's basically it's, just like a biological loop that just never got revised. Yeah, it's the um, 
recurrent laryngeal nerve. Uh, ah, you, you can yeah. find a video on YouTube of someone dissecting a giraffe and, and like showing you this. Um, it's fascinating because obviously the giraffe, the giraffe evolved from something with a shorter neck because why would you ever route traffic that way? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, have you driven in L.A.? I mean, <laughs> yeah, but L.A. evolved from from a giraffe with a shorter neck. True. <laughs> the reason that I really like load bearing bugs and weird tangled technical systems is because if you just show a modicum of respect for the people who built those systems and the journey they went through to get the systems to where they are, you can treat those systems as almost entirely an intellectual exercise without hurting anyone. It's really easy to just have fun thinking about those systems. Yeah, I, I'm in a hybrid state right now where I, if I'm by myself in my home with my door shut, so it's beautiful in this time of working from home, where, you know, I can mutter to myself as I'm going through a new code base that's unfamiliar to me and discovering things that just that set off my, my spidey senses and go, oh, what the heck is that? What, why is that there? And, you know, if I did that in front of the author, it would be incredibly cruel. Mm. And some of us do this with open source, right? We go through it and we go, oh, this is crap. And then we put it on Twitter. And for, I think what Rain was kind of hinting at a little bit is forgetting that there was a human who, who mm -hmm. was doing the best with what they had, the, the knowledge and tools mm -hmm. that they had at the time. And in open source, not getting paid for it. Right. I, I've certainly made an effort to try to, to be less, this is crap, and more, hmm, wow, those are some interesting choices. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, like, I'm a white dude, so I can make anything an intellectual exercise if I want <laughs> The, the question is whether is to what extent it's hurting other people, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, poking around in messy code is one of those places where you can do it in a way that doesn't need to hurt people. Yeah, Absolutely. we can curse at our computers in, in our home offices as loud as we want. And, well, it does disturb the rest of my family, but it doesn't disturb the authors. <laughs> That's the goal. Although I have to be a little careful because I'll, I'll notice if I have a day where I'm sitting in, in here in my, in my where I work and if I get a little shouty, like I had a couple of an incident a little while back and I was still cleaning up aftermath for a couple of days and uh, I was getting a little, you know, frustrated and letting it out and, you know, just by myself in my room. And then I noticed a little later in the evening I was out and I could hear my son on Skype with his friends and starting to hear him get a little bit shoutier. And so I'm like, oh, geez, no. <laughs> you picked it up. And uh, kids will do that, too. So Yeah, my kids do that. But but I curse so much that cursing isn't cool because it's something my parents do. <laughs> I do the same thing. thing. Oh. That's, <laughs> that's like a life hack. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the other thing that's nice about these systems is, you know, Conway's law is that you build systems that represent the relationships of the people that built the system. There's the, uh, you know, don't ship your org chart thing. The systems that we build are microcosms of like the relationships of the people that built them. And under, and by analyzing those systems, you can start to understand not just like the present day relationships, but historical ways of being in your company. Well, we can see that better from the code than necessarily say somebody could from the boundaries of the system, right? Like the APIs and so on. Yeah. And like digging into old files, you know, you can see changes in, for example, style. Uh, that you know the, the style that was prevalent at, in, on the teams at the time and styles that differ across teams or, or things like that and you can see the dysfunctions of when conway's law does not apply because for instance those linux developers who are re-implementing windows bugs that's because the game developers did not have connections to the people in the windows apis and the Linux developers do not have connections with the game developers. And so instead of negotiating a useful API between and like a flexible API that, that you can actually evolve and change, you can't. So you you do the weird tree around the, the sidewalk thing of growing in bizarre ways because the relationships that you need to parallel the technical system don't exist. Yeah, the, the fascinating thing about, you know, human artifacts, and I'm not the first person to have this thought, I just can't remember who to credit it to at the moment, is that they're all indelibly stamped with the experience of the people that made them. You know, like even a door, right? Like every designed artifact uh, has that property. And even some of even the undesigned I, I mean, I'm, I'm looking in this room I'm sitting in at a door. And, it was uh, probably not made by someone eight feet tall. 
what I'm picking up because my eyes kind of attuned to this stuff is it looks like it was probably made on a mill by a robot. Mm. So, so yeah. that door, the design of the door maybe carries some of that, but it's missing that craftsmanship part. I think that I, I at least heard a little bit in what you were saying, Rain. Yeah. Some of this comes from uh, design of everyday things, mm. but creating an artifact, designing an artifact is making a statement about not just how you perceive the world, but about how you believe other people perceive mm-hmm. the world. When you make something that's designed for other people to use, you have to have a theory of mind. Hmm. It, you you have to believe you know what they need. Well, I mean, that's probably not how modern doors get made. Is <laughs> but seems well, I, I, don't, I don't mean to throw it out. It's just to say that like most of these are probably designed. What what can we sell a whole hell of a lot of? Yeah. Well, there, so there's another and thing that happens, which, in... which is determined by how modern houses are made. Why are the doors that shape? Because doorways are that shape. Mm-hmm. So uh, Simonden, who I I can name drop, um, has a theory of technology uh, that talks about. The, the distance between fabrication and use. Mm. And that this is a sort of hallmark difference between craft or artisanal modes of production and industrial modes mm. of production. Okay. So if a, if a craftsperson makes a door, they are much more likely to actually know the person who is buying the door. I have an uncle that does right. working, and they have relationships with people. He has relationships with his, with his clients. He makes things specifically suited for their needs. And he's also involved in the life cycle of that thing. If he breaks, if it breaks, he goes and repairs it. That's an artisanal mode of production. But industrial modes of production are the door was created in a, in a factory from materials assembled in another factory and shipped on a truck to some store and then bought. And there's a, this huge gap between the fabrication of the product and the people who use it. And I think about that in terms of software delivery, too. Because we're a little closer than a door manufacturer might be well or a door one, of designer. The, one of the principles like if you analyze the agile manifesto manifesto from this perspective they are trying to reduce the gap between fabrication and use listen to your customers get feedback from your customers incorporate that into what you build ship working software to customers as often as possible those are all attempts to minimize that distance right yeah i really like that we, we tend to put up, I see it, it's so common today for what we call agile, at least as, as done in the world. There's usually like a product team that insulates the organization from the customers. To often, I, I'm still not really uh, sold on it myself. But Well, the thing is that the industrial mode was necessary to achieve the goals of the industrial revolution. You can't make a million doors with the artisanal approach. Oh, we, we, see, we see that in... Um, uh, social media moderation, I think, right? Like we're making millions of doors, but we are not <laughs> carrying the responsibility. Oh, and maybe, maybe the part where we can just buy a door at the hardware store because we don't care that much about doors, but we need a door. And the less time we spend on the door, the more time we can spend on the kitchen because that is really important. So mm. it's like by having frameworks and stuff that are generic, we can spend more attention on what really is important to our particular customers. Right. And, we need more, and, more people to spend less time on doors and more time on building, putting really good bathtubs in every house. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and then once we get really good at really good bathtubs, maybe we'll start caring about the doors a little bit. Amy, how does this distance between design and use uh, affect reliability in software? You know, I, I see it a lot is the disconnect is, is a big part of why a lot of orgs don't have a good reliability story is it comes down to, I, I, I don't know, I'm still trying to figure it out because the solution seems to be that the, the folks who care about reliability need to spend more time with the folks who define the product, right? And, and those are ostensibly the people who are spending time with the customers. But what I find is, is that the way the product world has moved over the last decade, at least from my observations, is... They very much are not so much representing the customer's work as they need to do. It, it's some it's some imagined version of what they, they go interview a customer, right? The customer says, oh, I'm trying to do this, and this is my goal, and this is what I'm trying to do. And they write down and make notes. And then they go back and design something, hand it to software engineering. And I think if you sat through that first conversation and looked at the output, it would be hard to see the connection between the two in a lot of product mm. pipelines. Because right? they've got a lot of work as imagined happening. 
I think so, right? Because it, there, it's, it's always going to be a balancing act, right? Because you can't just implement everything the customer asks for or what every customer needs. You've got to find that that common ground across customers that, that allows you to build something that's valuable to more than just one, right? So that you get this, the economy of scale and so on. Mm-hmm. But but I think that it goes, it gets too abstract and right. Things like, hey, our customers really care about reliability, right? They When our product doesn't work, they get really angry. They go yell at their boss, who is the decision maker. And and this is usually the the, the front line of reasoning I'm trying to tell decision makers, right, is is this is the value of, of putting reliability in. But it's too abstract. It's too late, right? And so it doesn't get designed in. But I think if that relationship was tighter, that it would create more of that, I, I don't know, empathy loop or something, where that the value of, of what customers experience from reliability would be more present in our product designs. Yeah, because when I use... Oh, yesterday it was Dropbox. It pops up its app and it's got five things it needs to tell me about. Look at this new feature. Look at that new feature. I'm like, <laughs> get out of my way. I just want you to work. I don't care. I just want you to do the few things that I count on well. And and the new features are not adding to my experience. You're a fancy FTP server. Get back in the box. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, as, a, as like a product owner or something, I want to get excited about new features. But as a customer, I just want the old features to work smoother and smoother. And if anything, if I want more of anything, it's integrations. That touches back to what we were saying earlier about this is kind of more at a product scale, but the investing really deeply in being like the best file distribution service there is, which Dropbox is pretty far up there. And then, and then that that desire in the industry's pull to say, oh, but you've got to land all these features to keep bringing in customers and growing and, and all of these other things. When most of us, we just want our dang files to be where we expect them to be. This whole conversation is making me think of like every time Twitter adds a new feature that nobody wanted and everyone's <laughs> like, cool, have you banned all the Nazis yet? Right. Well, they did finally ban a few. There's a, a subtle difference here, which is that the reason they haven't done that is not because <laughs> they're confused about what their users want. It's, <laughs> we are the ones who are confused about who their users are. Right. So I how does that play in with the shifts in policy that they've they've started demonstrating with blocking a few more people and stuff? Well, they don't want to lose $50 billion like Facebook just did. Right. <laughs> Right, because a bunch of companies just pulled advertising from Facebook for the month of July, right? Yeah. Like a bunch of really big companies for context for the listeners. It was, it was weird to, to have good feelings about Verizon. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still working on that. Um, that is weird. Processing. Yeah. So can I go back to the whole convincing executives to care about a thing? Yes, please. Yeah. So there, there are two things there that I notice uh, and that are sort of stereotypical of how organizations function, uh, which is that the hardest problem for every organization seems to be there seems to be two of them. One is now versus later. And two is where do we spend our attention to maximize value? Right. Because organizations are decision making organisms. Right. And so which decisions you make is the first thing to figure out. Right. Mm. But one of the things that's happened in the the sort of the structure of the corporation is that the the part of the organization that makes these now versus later trade-offs that translates strategy into action, um, that translates the there and then into the here and now, is subordinate to the part of the organization that is future looking. So the C suite is almost entirely future looking mm. oriented around strategy. The parts of the organization that actually translate that into performance, the day-to-day work of the organization are like VPs and sometimes directors. Mm -hmm. So corporations have made the translation of what is to be done with what do we do into a subordinate role. And I actually think that it's the most important role in any organization. The what do we do? The how do we translate our strategy into action role. Okay, okay. What I was hearing in there is you said the most important things. And, and for both of those, it feels to me like, especially once you get past a, a group of more than a few people, boils down to a communication problem, right? Because these guys are, or these folks at the sea level and so on are, are communicating well, about strategy. Well, they're, they're guys. Okay. <laughs> Statistically, yes. Um, trying to change the world here a little bit. Yep. One word at a time. You know, but they, 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 they communicate about strategy, but very often that, that, that breaks down even at their level. 
so that as it, it comes down in that to that subordinate role, as you mentioned it, it, it's already watered down. So even if the system above them had been working, it, it's not even working, right? Like the, the, that 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 model. Yeah. Let me give you an example of an alternative. So Stafford Beer's viable system model is, is a model that's based on biology that is both recursive. So like viable systems are constructed of viable systems, but, and it's also layered. So the model has five systems. I'll just uh, uh, skim through this really quickly. Systems one through three are focused on the here and now. So mm-hmm. system one is the people doing the work, the sense organs of the company or the organization. System two is the communication channels between system one and system three and between system one and system one system three is the make sure every all of the individual local work is congruent with a larger goal system system four is actually the forward looking and strategic organ and system five is the one that translates between system four and the uh now focused systems so actually the sort of the top level of the sort of hierarchical system is the system that does the translation and and his Model is based on biology. Yeah. So, I mean, it, system, it's kind of reminding me of at least the legends of Google at, at least 10 years ago. So system four is like the, the prefrontal cortex, the, the highest level abstraction machinery in the brain, right? And then mm-hmm. system five is the one that translates that into what your body does. Okay. So when Stafford Beer went to Chile in the early 1970s to head up this thing called Project CyberSign that he was asked to design, he put himself uh, at system five. He wasn't interested in being in the strategic organ of, of the system. He wanted to be where the plans for the future met the day to day because he felt like that was where he could make the biggest difference. I feel like a lot of software engineers would like to be there. Yeah, the, my sense is that the more experience or the more senior, I guess, engineers become, the more they begin, like, the way it's often put is that they're more interested in business needs and and so on um, and having more leverage. But a lot of that comes from understanding why the work I'm doing today is important to my team and then to my division and then to the company as a whole. System five is designing change. System five is translating the strategy that comes from system four into the short-term goals that are achieved by system three. So it's translating the five-year plan into the the six-month plan or something like that. Which means understanding not just where you're going, but also where you are. Mm -hmm. Mm. Interesting. Uh, I'm trying to... Do I want to just name drop Heidegger here? I guess I did. So Heidegger, who was an awful Nazi, um, points out that the present doesn't exist. The present is actually composed of two parts. One of those parts is anticipation of the future. And the other part is the result of the of the past. So our mood in the present is the result of the past, right? And anticipation of the future. But our actions are about anticipation of the future. Hmm. So that bad burrito I ate yesterday is why I'm in a bad mood today. Yeah, so it's path-dependent, right? If you had had a different yesterday, you would be in a different present today. Right. Although your anticipation of the future has a big effect on that, too. And your past anticipation of the future even more. Because if I ate a burrito from Taco Bell and it tasted exactly as bad as I expected it to, it's fine. If I thought I was going to get a good burrito, then i get really cranky. (laughs) (laughs) But either way, tomorrow's going to be bad. (laughs) (laughs) right we'd like to take a break in the show to let you know that today's show is sponsored by strong dm managing your remote team as they work from home managing a gazillion ssh keys database passwords and kubernetes certs meet strong dm manage and audit access to servers databases and kubernetes clusters no matter where your employees are with StrongDM, easily extend your identity provider to manage infrastructure access, automate onboarding, offboarding, and moving people within roles, grant temporary accesses that automatically expires to on-call teams. Admins get full auditability into anything anyone does, when they connect, what queries they run, what commands are typed. It's full visibility into everything. For SSH, RDP, and Kubernetes, that means video replays. For databases, it's a single unified query log across all database management systems. StrongDM is used by companies like Hearst, Peloton, Betterment, Greenhouse, and SoFi to manage access. It's more control and less hassle. 
Strong DM. Manage and audit remote access to infrastructure. Start your free 14-day trial today at strongdm.com sdt. Amy, what was the... You, you mentioned something about a story of Google in the heyday. Oh, I was tra- I was trying to connect what Rain was was talking about. With the, there was the the legend that Google didn't really have um, the product managers were not in charge of the software engineers, but were more subordinate. And it was that subordinate word that actually got me onto this. And they didn't really describe it as subordinate, but the the engineers were so privileged within Google's system that product people could suggest what they wanted them to do but they didn't have the kind of authority that they have in most organizations. And it kind of made me think of that, that pattern. I don't know if it's still that way, but that's, that's mm-hmm. why it was described to me. And like I said, about a decade ago. Because the software engineers have an idea of where, where things are, how the system currently works. Right. And how best to fit, you know, Hey, we need this feature because users are asking for X, but that also needs to be matched with, well, okay, so what can the system do today? And what, what is this, you know, the, the right change we can make to support that behavior? But it's yeah, awesome. yeah. That's all that context. I mean, Netflix does it that way, too, in a, lot, a large extent with context over control. People can come and ask a software team at Netflix and say, I, you need to do X. And they can say, well, we really don't. And uh, no, because, <laughs> because the demands of our system and our mission for, you know, whatever we own on this team is X, Y, Z, and that's not part of it. And so you're welcome to go do it yourself, but we're not going to take it. And that's that's kind of how it works in a lot of ways there is, you know, that direct communication without authority. That that reminds me of my, my, my other superpower, which oh, was really? sniffing out authority or misuse of authority, um, which comes from, a, you know, my, my childhood of dealing with misuse of authority. But now, like when I see it in the world, and it doesn't have to be like, you know, somebody smacking down somebody who's lower than them. It's usually it could be even small things sometimes, you know, where somebody approaches, you know, uh, let's say one recently I was was somebody who is a leader came into a meeting and had prepared a had already decided what it was clear that they had already decided what they wanted the outcome to be. And they, they basically used their authority without really thinking about it to talk nonstop for 20 minutes and push through to where they wanted to land instead of creating a discussion where, where we would organically land at the best place as a team. And it wasn't so much like nefarious or anything like that, but it was because of the authority that he carried that he was able to get to do that. And then that people would be drawn into it without a lot of critical thought. Whereas, you know, because I've got this, this weird sense, I'm just like, oh, gross. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, instead of being drawn into it. Right. Mm. Uh, that's really useful. As a leader, I would really appreciate having your superpower on my team because authority is a curse in the sense that it keeps you it keeps you away from information because hmm. people don't bring you information that you don't want. Yeah. And it's hard to convince people that you really do want that information. It's really hard. And actually, a, a whole bunch of effort has been put into trying to make that happen. So if you look at high reliability organization research, if you look at just culture, a lot of this stuff, one of the like main focuses is how do you actually get people to tell your boss's stuff? Right. So the the like there's a huge amount of emphasis placed on on whistleblowers, for example, and their importance because of how toxic most cultures are to that sort of thing. There needs to be a sort of commensurate push to try to make it possible. But whistleblowers should be the default, right? If we really want mm-hmm. safe systems, mm-hmm. we want people to debate, to, to hey, I, this isn't right as soon as possible. Instead, instead of what we get in, well, let's look at the, the, the what's going on in America, right? Like the, it, letting it go for hundreds of years until finally <laughs> things boil over. Yeah, you want your list, your your whistleblowers to sound like a bunch of birds in the backyard, not like a train. That would be nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> one, one of the challenges with the viable system model is that it's based on this assumption that the, the people at different l- levels of the system all want the same thing. Mm. Um, and that is often not true. So in the, the VSM, there's this idea of um, what he calls algodonic signals, which is just a fancy way to say pain and pleasure signals. So like in your in your body, you have nerves that transmit pain signals up to your brain, right? And so if you touch your hand on a burning stove, the very first thing that happens is that a local reflex pulls your hand away, right? But then at the same time, it transmits all the way up to your brain. And so one of the questions in organization is how do you get signals that matter, you know, these salient signals to the high level 
you know, apparatus that needs to look at them. And the the problem is that this is assuming that the high level apparatus wants to know about those signals or has the same idea about what is to be done about them as the people who are experiencing them. And isn't dissociated. <laughs> yeah, isn't like, eh, I didn't like that hand anyway, I'll just grow a new one. Yeah, so it's a sort of utopian thing. And I, so I, it's like I have some, you know, issues with it. But in terms of aspirational, it, it's pretty good aspirational system. Have you heard of people trying to build organizations around it? And not recently. I mean, there has been a there's you could if you put viable system model into Google Scholar, you can find a bunch of, of papers about this. Um, like I said, Project CyberSign was explicitly um, his attempt to build this thing, and it didn't go great, although a lot of that was not because of problems with the system per se, although arguably its inability to respond to the environment was a problem with the system per se. <laughs> but yeah, cybernetics as a whole is a thing that kind of fizzled out in the 80s. You're kind of single-handedly trying to bring it back, though, I've, I've noticed. There are... <laughs> Other, there are dozens of us. Dozens, <laughs> dozens, dozens. It's um, going to be a revolution. The thing about cybernetics is that it's it's sort of wed to the information processing systems model of cognition, which is that you know brains are like little computers and so on. You know the the Shannon model of of communication. But I think that there is a way to get some of the good stuff out of it and to synthesize it with sort of more modern research into, you know, joint cognitive systems and more modern ways of thinking about cognition. The models that I've been able to pull out of it have been very useful to me. I'd love to try some of that someday. It'd be fun just to see something different, right? That, 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 I think that's more what I'm like. That sounds cool. and But like mostly I just want to see some models that are a little different from the, the same stuff we've been trying over and over and over and over and over. Oh, please stop. <laughs> yeah. the, the interesting thing about his model is that for him, this is not the way things ought to be for him. This is the way they must be to be viable. So his idea is that this system should describe, you should be able to map any viable system onto this model or vice versa. And so it's interesting for me to look at real existing systems and to compare how they seem to function. And when I do that, yeah, I sometimes find things that I think are incongruent with that model. And that helps me to like think about areas where I think something could profitably be changed. Mm. Yeah, in a company, you could have R&D separate from the C-suite so one example that shows up very frequently is that directors are sort of the bridge between the VP and up are are in the sort of strat strategic mode in an organization. And below the director is, is mostly day-to-day -day operations. Um, the director is often sort of the bridge between those two modes, those two worlds, but they very often don't see themselves as having mm. that role. Oh, interesting because they learned how to manage, you know, in a, in an industry that doesn't teach people how to manage people. And so they often think of their job as being managing people rather than managing systems. Mm. Yeah. I've, I've actually heard that before from folks, you know, transitioning through those layers of, of organizations, you know, where they talk about, you know, when you're a manager, you're managing a team. When you're a director, you're managing managers of teams. And then mm -hmm. at VP, you're, you're managing teams of teams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and you, the directors are the high, the the lowest level in the organization that sit in on those leadership meetings very often. Right, right. But they're not generally not doing a great job of even disseminating that information down. They expect it to come through other channels, like you know the product management structure of the organization, because they don't think it's their right. job. And that's another thing that Netflix gets really right, I think, is is directors, especially and managers, d do view their jobs entirely as being more about context and alignment than about mm. control, right? Because they, they take it dead serious. And so these folks, that's what they do is they go around talking to each other, which to a lot of, especially young engineers, looks like, well, what are they doing all day? They're just sitting in rooms yap yapping at each other. But what they're doing is creating alignment. And then they're supposed to bring that back to their teams yeah, and, and then discuss yeah. it again. And that's how they create the system of constant realignment um, that, that keeps up. And that's why the software teams are able to say, no, we're not implementing that because we know what we're trying to do right. and that's not it. Yes. 
One of the things that I learned uh, from this model that really helps me to tr uh, attack this problem is we generally think of communication in hierarchical organizations as either going sideways or vertically, right? So you either right. directors talk to other directors or they, they talk to their reports, right? But actually, diagonal connections between people and especially organic ones mm. are really important. So me talking to some other director in a team whose work I'm interested in from time to time or directors who have their hands not to be like, not to try to say what, you know, tell people what to do, but to understand the work that's being done in various places of the organization. It also helps bridge their gap between work as imagined and work as done for those other teams because they because know what other directors think that those teams are doing. Oh yeah. And, and those people who aren't directly on their team are more likely to give them actual information. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Because it's a, yeah, it's outside of the, the normal authority chain. Yeah. I mean, you still get some deference, but not the same kind of deference as if it's your director. So Amy, I want, I want to hear more about you. What are you doing now? What am I doing now? Oh, I, I'm doing a lot of different stuff. So uh, as you mentioned earlier, uh, I am doing some DevRel stuff, which is uh, what I was largely, my role is hybrid officially. Uh, I'm staff SRE by title, but the, the part that I, I think I get the most fun out of right now is the DevRel stuff, which is, you know, doing talks, uh, working with, with people. I, I do a lot of drop-in like professional services stuff now um, that's been added on. We produce a bunch of content. <laughs> it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to even put my mind around how much we're doing. In my SRE role, I'm, uh, I own our availability program at Blameless. So I, I'm training my fellow SREs, how to run that process, basically setting up, doing all of our, make sure all of our incident reviews happen, making sure that SLOs happen, make sure that things get reviewed and touched on on a regular basis. So we have a process that we're running that basically encodes all of that into a durable process that's repeatable. So we put that together and then I do incident command. Um, I'm the only incident commander right now, which is kind of cool, but it's a startup. And, uh, and then I do regular SRE stuff that most people would think of, like you know, breaking Kubernetes and stuff like that. So you moved from some large companies to uh, a startup. What What is the difference? Like SRA has, I've historically thought of it as being how Google does things. And whenever I <laughs> try to do it. They did write the book officially. Right? Yes. And when I've tried to do it, I've always had to adapt it pretty yeah. heavily for a different context. So what do you do to make SRE work at a startup? The, the biggest thing is, is I, I, I tell people all the time is Google didn't tell the whole story in the books and they, they couldn't, right? Like that's just being fair. And so I take the ideas out and, um, you know, and look, look at the goals, right? So like SLOs are, the goal is to create a feedback loop that is, you know, kind of chill, right? It's on a day or, or week or month kind of cadence that you review these. Um, but it, what it's doing is creating a feedback single for, signal from production to the product is the goal, right? And so instead of looking at like all the ins and outs of how Google does it, I focus on what is the business problem that we have? What are, you know, what is our what are our customer journeys? And we're building a product around this. So I, you know, I'm talking about this in fancy ways all the time. But the, the idea being that um, we can measure things happening in production and feed that back to the product folks so that they have the information to make better decisions. Now, it takes months and years sometimes for this to all settle in and start to work the way that, you know, it's it's sold as in the Google books. And that's part of what they leave out is that, you know, they worked on that for 10, 15 years to figure out that model. And, uh, you know, you got to get people attuned to the signals and to start understanding what the signals mean and, and what kind of decisions to make based on them. So that's that's part of the work is one. I, st I focus on that that durable process, which sets us up for this change over a long period of time and then really just establishing the feedback loop. So, you know, mainly it's incidents and um, SLOs from production back into the product. And so my team, the SRE team, is the conduit for that. And it can work in a small org or a large org. Just in small orgs, you deal with things like, you know, really low statistical significance in your signals, stuff like that. One of the, the really interesting things about SRE for me is that it's in terms of how it was originally designed and framed, at least as it's the way it's presented in the in the books, it's an axiomatic system by which I mean they started from a premise, an axiom, which is operations ought to be done by engineers. We ought to take an engineering approach to operations. And then they sort of constructed a system from first principles. 
I don't think that story's true. That's how you know, that's <laughs> how it comes across in the book, right? So like the very right. first paragraph of the book is, you know, we had to take an engineering approach to operation because we didn't have enough people and so on. And it also does a good job of sort of, like you were saying, presenting the sort of hierarchy of needs, you know, like hmm. we need to take an engineering approach to operations. And so in order to accomplish that, we need X. And so in order to accomplish that, we need Y. And so in order to accomplish that, we need SLOs. And if you can like reconstruct this, this sort of chain of, of reasoning and apply it to your organization and understand the goals at the various levels, I think that's what made it easy to, or possible to adapt it for me. Yeah. Another one of those things that I thought of while you were going through that is they tell that story. And I I, I actually feel like it's a little misleading. I mean, uh, it's a just story, right? Right. And But what, what really happened was, is they decided to invest in operations. And, and the way that Google did that was by throwing engineers at it, because that's what Google's really great at is hiring tons and tons of engineers without really caring what kind of people they are. And so, so they had engineers to put at the problem. And when you have a, a tens of thousands of engineers, everything is an engineering problem. But what really needed to happen at the end of the day in, in every organization is invest in the operations, code, infrastructure, people, right? Instead of just treating it like this garbage dump where your code goes and, and magic happens and, and customers get to use it, right? And that that's the old model. And, and really, that's, I think, the, the big C change of SRE is investing in operations, having people who are professionals who develop expertise in how production systems behave. And that leads to behaviors like, oh, we should automate this because automating, say, distributed systems is, um, you know, requires an absolute ton of context, right? So you need that expertise and stuff like that. So I, I really think it's just about investment. It gets back to where do you spend your attention, right? Mm -hmm. I'm interested how you would adapt like the practices or the the like the, the mode of the SRE team to a smaller company. So for example, when I've done this, I I took a much more sort of consulting approach. I didn't have a hundred engineers lying around who could just become SREs. I had like three people, right? We literally couldn't own everything. And so right. the way we adapted to this was by taking on a consulting role within the organization. Yep. That's super common approach. And I, I I'm actually tossing around. So the Netflix folks, they they call their core SRE team the core SRE. And so people have been bothering them for a while to say, oh, you need to write down this core SRE model. But I really think there is a centralized SRE model that isn't very well explained out in the world. That 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 is what you're describing, right? There's that consulting arm of it. There is what processes do they own? What what are they responsible for? And how do you tie it back to the business goals? Most people think, you know, oh, well, well infrastructure. But um, if you pull back a little bit, you know, it's stuff like, you know, what I described, these processes for um, product feedback from, from production, these uh, processes for um, resolving things going on in production and, and feeding it back in the larger system. I guess I said the same thing twice, you know, but the, the consultancy, because we can't keep hiring SREs for as these teams grow and you have, you know, 15, 20 service teams. And you can't put SREs on all of them. And in, in essential, so you really want to look at a centralized SRE team because we're some of the hardest people out there to hire right now, and and then figure out how to get the leverage out of it. Yeah. Oh yeah, and team topologies—they call that the enabling team, mm. the the team that doesn't take responsibility for all of, in this case, your SRE, but uh, works with other teams to enable them to mm. take responsibilities for their own ops and SRE. Yeah, and I add on top the of enablement, but also the um, holding of accountability, right? So that that's what most people think of SLOs or or incident management, right? That's that's where you 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 have that that ability to see, hey, this this team we've enabled is veering off course, and we're here. To, then we can recognize that without them, with even if they don't know it, and then go and work and engage with that team, right? So it's it's back to enablement, but you need that uh, that layer of detection of when things oh, are going nice. sideways, so that you know when so, to reengage. <laughs> so not only do we give you help when you need it, but we tell you when you need it. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> how it goes a lot. When I've been trying to sort of like explain at a sort of executive level what the goal of SRE is, I, I, I came up with something that I like, and I'm wondering how how you feel about it, which is that the goal of SRE is to change the way your organization relates to the systems it runs, to production and so on. I like that. I like that so, a lot because it is the goal. 
So, for example, SLOs are changing the way you relate to the health or the success of, of the systems. Right. You know, incident response is changing the way you relate to failure. Right. And both both are creating that opportunity for people to experience what their what their product does in the real world. Right. So as software engineers, uh, a lot of times you're we're so disconnected from, you know, you write the code, you put it in the deploy system, the tests run and eventually a feature flag gets flipped and your code is in production. But largely you've lost direct touch with it by the time you've committed the code and it goes off into abstract land and eventually ends up in customers hands. But that that part where we bring you into, say, incident management and um, incident analysis is is connecting you back to what your code is doing in the real world. So I like that. Yay. Oh, it's about time for reflections. So reflections is the part of the show where we usually each say something that we're going to follow up at, something that particularly struck us. Amy, in lieu of a reflection, can I have one more question? Sure. Why do you hate the word matured? Oh, <laughs> as a neurodivergent person, a lot of my outward behaviors took longer than my peers to develop. Even well into my career, I would get described as immature very frequently because I would see things that I thought were wrong or something like that and say, hey, that's wrong. Or, you know, or, you know, or, or just say things more bluntly yeah. than I, a lot of people normally would. But after a couple of years of acclimation into, you know, industry. So you weren't um, squashed it, yet. Right. I don't think I have been squashed yet, although it feels like that sometimes. And so that word uh, I hear all over the place, you know, use immature, immature, immature. And I'm, I'm going in my experience with it is, is that it just doesn't really mean anything. It you know, it, it's just well, the way I want you to. Right. Right. And so um, I, I just don't like it. And I try not to use it too much because it's just most of my experience with it is using it to dismiss people. Super judgy. Thank you. So I'm I'm thinking back to how Amy started this conversation by talking about messes and the way she thinks of messes as both being beautiful and emergent. So beautiful things can come out of messes. This reminds me of Russell Ackoff, who uses mess as a technical term. So... A mess for Russell Ackoff uh, is sort of like what other folks call a tangled network. So it's an overlapping and interpenetrating system of problems. It's uh, the way things relate to each other. It's all of the hidden dependencies and hidden um, effects uh, in these systems and Russell Ackoff spent a lot of his career trying to figure out how to deal with messes. And he has a quote that I think contains, it's sort of one of those very dense quotes, sort of like, do the simplest thing that could possibly work is, where all of the words are very meaningful, at least to me. And the quote is that a problem is an abstraction extracted from a mess via analysis. Can you say it again, please? A problem is an abstraction extracted from a mess via analysis. So the things that we think of as problems are actually not real things. They're things that we have invented through analysis of some total system. Right. And they are abstractions. They're not concrete things. There are ways of understanding some facets or aspects of the larger mess, the larger system. and. In some sense, our understanding of a complex system is largely about how we have analyzed it into distinct problems. So one of the things that this allows us to do is to treat problems as being independent of each other. This is useful to us because we couldn't solve them otherwise, but it's also not true. And right. that sometimes bites us. But whenever I think about trying to solve problems, I always try to do it with some understanding of the context of not only what I'm valuing by reifying it as a part of the problem, but also what I'm dismissing and why I'm hmm. choosing to do that. And some understanding of the relationship between the problems I perceive as a part of the system. So to get super political for a second, 
race and class in America are two problems that we like to often analyze separately, but they're part of one mess. Right. Wow. <laughs> I mean, a lot, we're all staring at that mess a lot right now and, and trying to extract problems from it. So I, I, I imagine that's something a lot of people are going to relate to. Yeah, and it's really interesting to me not only to see how I understand the world in terms of problems, but also how other people understand the world in terms of problems. So the way they describe problems will tell you a lot about their understanding of the mess, what they value, what they think is important, what their goals are, what they're striving for. But I like the the flip side that says that um, I, I can look at a mess and choose not to extract problems from it and just and just see it for what it is. Which I hope I hope people see me sometimes, you know, and when, when I'm a mess, and instead of just the problems. But oh, yeah, and there's value in in seeing myself sometimes, and not expecting anyone else to see everything, because sometimes I'm the only one who can just fully appreciate and sit with this particular mess. Right. I I picked up on a couple of things, especially later in the conversation. One is I. Myself, I really want to read up more on this cybernetics thing that my my friend Rain has has been bringing up pretty frequently, at least when I'm paying attention. And, and really, I, I'm interested in these new models. You know, that, that part of the discussion really resonated with me. You know, because we we keep trying the same patterns and and keep complaining about the same outcomes. You know, as as engineers, we're like, okay, so we got to change the the approach, right? We got to change what we're doing. And I would love to learn more about these. I, I'm going to reflect more on that and and look for, at more of these models and learn more about them. There are a, a couple things I can recommend. There, one is an old book called Thinking by Machine: A Study of Cybernetics, and this was published originally in 1957, so it's really early in the journey of cybernetics. But it has a foreword by Isaac Asimov, if that's the sort of thing you're into. Another one is Cybernetic Revolutionaries by Adina. Eden Galanter. No. no Eden no, Medina. No. Eden Medina. Oh, yeah, Galanter's the tarot cards. Dang it. So we actually uh, interviewed her on the podcast, which was one of the highlights for me. Ooh. Uh, it's this one and that one are, are my two favorite episodes. Um, Aw. <laughs> I did. I did really like this episode, but that book situates cybernetics in terms of the historical struggle struggle of uh, Salvador Allende's uh, Chile in the early 1970s. Oh gosh, it's and a, it a also, really yeah. pleasing hardcover book. I have mm -hmm. a signed copy. Nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It also, but it also gets into the, the the history of cybernetics. There are sort of two largely separate streams of thought: one in America and one in England. And it talks about the differences there. And, and it's, I, I really enjoyed that book. And also, the stuff that happened in Chile is incredible. Hmm. Mostly not in a good way. Indeed, there were some things that you can take away from it, but it was not, yeah, not a fun time. The last one I would recommend is if you want more about the viable system model in particular, Stafford Beer wrote about that in his book called The Brain of the Firm, which sort of gives the game away in the title. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. And thank you to all of our listeners. Please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash greater than code. And then you can join us on Slack and chit chat with all of us. And yeah, keep hanging in there. We can still work. <laughs> <laughs>